When I was about 10 years old, um, someone gave me a book on Tutankhamun. Now, I didn't know anything about Tutankhamun. Some people are nodding. Um, you've heard of Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun was an Egyptian pharaoh uh, who lived about 1300 BC. Um, Tutankhamun was not very famous as a pharaoh. He became pharaoh at about the age of eight years old, if you can believe it. Eight years old, he became the most powerful man in the world at that time. Um, and he died at about the age of 18 or 19. Um, so very short reign, very short life. There's not much to say about Tutankhamun as a pharaoh and as a person. But Tutankhamun's really famous because in November 1922, Howard Carter and a group of English archaeologists discovered his tomb almost completely intact 3,000 years after he was buried it, uh, buried in it in Egypt. It's the only uh, royal tomb that's ever been excavated intact, but all the other royal tombs have been found by grave robbers over thousands of years and everything taken out. But Tutankhamun's tomb was found completely intact. And Now, when I say tomb, don't think like a room with a coffin in it. Right, this was a whole series of rooms and corridors and underground chapters. It was like a house uh, in the ground. And um, there was uh, his gold coffin, solid gold coffin in there. Um, but all the other rooms were full of all sorts of artifacts and statues and precious things. Um, in fact, there were 5,398 artifacts in Tutankhamun's tomb. It took Howard Carter and his group of archaeologists over 10 years uh, to collect and to catalogue everything that they discovered in Tutankhamun's tomb. So his tomb is really famous, and he's really famous not for what he did as a pharaoh, but for what um, historian, historians and archaeologists learnt about Egyptian culture and about ancient culture from everything they found in the tomb. You see, because in ancient Egyptian culture, they believed uh, that people, especially their royalty, that they lived in the afterlife. And so they buried with uh, Tutankhamun everything that he needed for the afterlife, if you can believe that. So as well as, uh, as well as his big gold coffin, there was a gold throne so that in the afterlife, you know, every king needed a throne. Um, there was a throne. There was a whole stack of other furniture down there for him. Um, there were archery bows and arrows and armors because I guess you never know what's going to you know happen in the afterlife for you. Um, there was a, there was a golden chalice for him to drink from. There were plates and other sorts of things for him to eat from. There was food down there. Uh, there was preserved food and wine that was left there for him in the afterlife. There were clothes. There were a whole bunch of clothes. There, there were there were brand new sets of linen underwear for him uh, uh, there in the afterlife, which I know we all laugh now, right? Because you think like that's ridiculous. Whatever you think about the afterlife, the idea that you need to pack stuff from here to take with you is absurd, isn't it? Uh, until you see the way that most of us live, right? We're in a series that we're calling Idols. We're exploring some of the things that can become idols in our lives. We're using Tim Keller's definition of what an idol is from his book, Counterfeit Gods, where he says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. 
And we're acknowledging that when most people hear the word idols, they think about gold statues and stuff, you know, the sort of thing that Indiana Jones chases after in the movies. But I want to tell you that something isn't an idol because of the way it was made. Something becomes an idol because of where we put it in our lives. Does that make sense? There's nothing that's an idol because of the way someone's created. Something becomes an idol because of the place that we give it, the importance that we give it in our lives. Most idols are completely normal things. In reality, most of the things that we set up as idols are actually good things. But they become idols because we put them at the centre of our lives. They become idols because we put them in that place in our life where only God should be. They become idols because we choose to look toward them for security. We choose to look toward them for happiness, for joy, for meaning and purpose. Those things that should come to us from God. That's what makes something an idol. And in this series, we're looking at some of the things that we tend to put up as idols. And we're not doing any of that to make people feel guilty. We're not doing any of that to sort of judge people or to point fingers. This is a part of us saying, how can we follow Jesus? What are the things that sometimes become sort of barriers or that become challenges for us in our mission to follow Jesus as individuals and as a church? So we're looking at some of these things that become idols. We're asking themselves, what impact do these idols have on our lives? And I guess importantly, what could we do to move ourselves, to move those things, those, those things that become idols, to move those to a healthier place in our lives? And as we look around ourselves at the kinds of things that could become idols, there's no more obvious idol in our culture than money. There's no more obvious idol in our culture than money and the stuff that we buy with our money. Money's sort of everywhere for us, isn't it? Like we, we work for it, we sacrifice for it, we plan around it. Sometimes we even lie and cheat for it. And you think, oh, I don't lie about money. But you know, then you think, well, I did put that thing on my tax that was just a little bit, you know. There are whole professions, whole pro and they're good. I'm not knocking them. There are whole professions that are just centred around helping us to manage and control and understand our money. There's that old song, money makes the world go round. And the truth is that it really always has. It always has. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said a lot about money and the place that money and stuff occupy in our lives. Matthew, when he sat down to write a biography of Jesus, he remembers Jesus teaching this. This is uh, Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal it. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal it. He said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A couple of verses later in verse 24, he writes, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you would be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Luke remembers Jesus saying this, Watch out. 
Watch out, Jesus said. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. It's Luke 12, 15. Matthew remembers another time where Jesus says, the worries of this life. He was talking about things happening. He said, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth can choke out the word, can choke out the word of God in your life, making your lives unfruitful. Matthew 13. Jesus doesn't seem to be telling us that money is bad. He's not anti-money. But he is saying, be careful, isn't he? He's saying, watch out. He's saying, be careful that money doesn't end up ruling your life. He's saying, don't let money become an idol. It was a message that made an impression on Jesus' first followers. It was something that they learned and that they passed on. Decades after uh, the life of Jesus, uh, Paul is an old man and he's writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy was a young guy that Paul was mentoring. Uh, Paul had planted a number of churches and he'd left Timothy in one of these churches as their sort of pastor and leader and teacher. And he writes a letter letter to Timothy in the church. Talk to Timothy about the way he should pastor and the way he should lead. But he also talks to Timothy about the things he should teach. 1 Timothy 6, chapter, uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 2, Paul writes this to him. He says, these are the things you are to teach. In verse 6, he goes on and says, godliness with contentment is great gain. As if you can chase God and you can be content about that, that's a good thing. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. That'll be enough for us. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, remember he's talking to young Timothy, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. A couple of verses later, verse 17, Paul writes, Command those who are rich, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, and to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up for themselves treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. Coming age means uh, eternity, life beyond this one. That's, that's what uh, Paul's talking about. They'll lay up for themselves treasure for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Paul's telling young Tim what to teach in the church and he's passing, I think you can hear it, he's passing on the same sort of message that Jesus was teaching. He's not saying that money's bad, but he's warning Tim. He's saying, teach people we brought nothing into the world, we'll take nothing out of it. Those who want to get rich uh, can fall into temptation and a trap. He says some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Command those who are rich not to put their hope in wealth. 
And I know it's 2,000 years later and we live halfway across the world and so much has changed in that time. But I'm not sure a lot's changed in the way that money affects our hearts, has it? We still have to be careful, don't we? We still have to be careful about where we put money in our lives. Because we can still fall into the trap, as Jesus says, of letting money master us. We can still fall into the trap of living in a life that becomes about an abundance of possessions. You know, Micah and I were uh, driving into the city yesterday and we, um, we'd gone from somewhere, so we were sort of taking back streets. And we drove past in uh, Everard Park there. There's this massive U-Store facility there. I don't know if you know where it is. It's part of it's on Anzac Highway, but it goes way back. It's like a, it's like a, a couple of blocks full of this massive, massive U store. But, you know, imagine if you could have told people a hundred years ago that you would own so much stuff, you would have so much stuff that you would have to pay for somewhere outside of your house <laughs> to keep your stuff. Imagine that. So much stuff that you can't even store it in your house and you have to pay for somewhere else just to keep your stuff. And I'm not knocking it. It's, I'm not, there's no judgment. I'm just saying, it's just mind-blowing, isn't it? That that's the way the world works. We all have to decide if money and stuff is going to become a part of our life. We all have to decide where we're going to set up money in our lives. Are we going to set it up as part of our life, something to be used in our lives, or does it become that central thing that is most important to us? I read a quote during the week from a guy called Russ Roberts. He's an economist at Stanford Uni. And he writes this about money. Now, remember, Russ Roberts is not a Christian, okay? And he's a lecturer in economic theory at a university, right? This is a guy that talks and writes about money for a living. A not a Christian. And this is what he writes. There's something else that's weird but true. In, a day-to-day, in, the, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, right? It's not a Christian. The, the, the compelling reason for choosing some sort of spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or whatever, he lists a whole bunch of other gods, is, it, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's just the truth. Can we be honest for a moment today? I've been in church a long time. Uh, I've had conversations with people about money for decades and I can almost guarantee, almost guarantee what you're thinking now. You're thinking, you know, you're right, Matt. Worshipping money can be dangerous. I can see that danger in the lives of other people. (laughs) You know? But I'm glad I don't worship money. I'm glad money's not a problem for me. I'm glad money's not an idol for me. I can see how it's a problem for other people. But man, I'm glad it's not a problem for me. I know that's what you're thinking because that's what I'm thinking too, right? I'm being totally honest here. 
Here's what I've learned from years of talking to people about money, from talking to people like you about stuff like this, is that no matter how rich or poor you are, no matter how, no matter how rich or poor you think you are, no matter how much money you spend on this, no matter how much money you save or invest or whatever you do with money, the reality is that all of us think that our view on money is okay. That's just the way people are. It's the way I am. It's the way you are. Everybody thinks that their spending habits are reasonable. Everybody thinks that the way they view money and the way they use money, the way they spend, the way they save is okay. Nobody thinks that they put money in the place of an idol in their life. Everybody thinks that's something that other people do, but it's not me. So let me ask you a question this way. How excited do you get about money? How excited do you get about the stuff you buy? And if we're being really honest, compare that level of excitement with the level of excitement that you have about the things of God. And if you're still not sure about that, what if I asked your friends? What if I asked your friends, I asked them to tell me about how excited you were about telling them about that thing that you bought recently compared to how excited you were about telling them about that thing that you read in the Bible recently. And if the answer in your mind is, well, I don't read the Bible much, that's kind of the answer then, isn't it, right? Let's be really awkward and honest. How much time do you spend researching that thing you're going to buy? And look, I'm, I'm talking to me too here, right? Like, so there's no judgment in this. I'm just, you know, laying it out there. This is me too. How much time do we spend researching that stuff we're going to buy? Compared to the amount of time that we spend in our faith, the amount of time that we spend with Jesus. Do you know how many conversations I've had with people over the years who tell me they wish they could pray more, they wish they could read more, they just don't have time. And in five minutes, they're telling me about the hour that they've spent researching this new pair of shoes and, and you know, which, which, which brand they should get and which size they should get and which material and which colour. And look, I do the same thing, right? So I'm, honestly, I'm going to keep saying this. I'm not saying this with any sense of judgment. This is what I do too. The truth is that how excited we get the truth is that where we put our energy, that where we put our time, that tells us the real truth about our priorities, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That tells us the real truth about where our heart is on these things. Whatever I say about the place of money in my life, whatever I think about the place of money in my life, the way that I spend my time and my energy tells me the real story, doesn't it? And the reality is that it's hard to see this in your own life. That's why we feel like we can see it in the lives of other people, but we can't see it in our own life. I think that's why Jesus says, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Because life doesn't consist of an abundance of possessions. Because he knows that this is something that you don't see easily in your own life. 
That's why Paul says to Tim, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Haven't deliberately run away. They've just got so obsessed by stuff that they've just sort of wandered. You know, they've just drifted. They didn't intend for it to happen, but all of a sudden, Jesus is here and they're over there. The good news I want to tell you this morning is that there is hope. That Jesus is good and kind and gracious and compassionate and there is a way out. There is a way to defeat the idol of money and stuff in your life. And that way out is generosity. That way out is radical generosity. Matthew remembers in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In that same letter that Paul wrote to Tim about the dangers of money, he also wrote this. Command those who are rich in this present world to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Because you see, generosity, when we're generous, we bless others. Generosity is a blessing to other people. But do you know what? Generosity also does something in us. Did you know that? Generosity releases us. When we're generous, generosity releases us from the love of money and the grip of greed. Because in order to be generous, in order to give to others, you've got to sort of open your hands and let go of the thing that you're holding. Generosity, by its very nature, helps us loosen the grip on money and loosen the grip on stuff in our own lives. Generosity shows how much we trust God. Generosity shows how important God is to us. Generosity is a way of saying, I can give this away because I trust that God's got me. I don't need to hold tight to this because there's someone holding tight to me. Generosity is a way of saying, you know what, I really don't need this stuff because the thing that I really need is Jesus. Now, this next bit I'm about to say, this isn't in the Bible, this is just me, right? So you can take this with a pinch of salt. But in my experience, in my experience, generous people tend to be happy people. Right? That's not in the Bible, this is just me talking. But people who are generous tend to be, in my experience, more happy. They tend to be more positive. They tend to have more joy in their life. They tend to be more fun to be around. And I'm not just talking about generous like, well, I gave a couple of dollars to a charity collector a while ago. I'm talking about people who've done radical, crazy, generous things in their life. Megan was reading me the story of a guy um, who lives this kind of life. And he says, I just go to the fast food place and I buy 20 hamburgers. And then I just drive around town and I look for people who look lonely and I stop and say, do you want a hamburger? And he just gives it to them. He doesn't preach to them. He doesn't write, Jesus loves you on the hamburger. He just gives them a hamburger. He's the happiest bloke you'll ever meet, this guy. (laughs) 
people who give up things, people who live lives of radical generosity, just are naturally filled with a joy and a hope and a positivity that comes from living that kind of life that is dependent on God and not on stuff. Sometimes in church we call this sacrificial giving. right? Not giving sort of the bit extra that we've got, but actually sacrificing what we want in order to give to someone else. That kind of giving, that kind of generosity brings a sort of freedom and a joy into our lives that is hard to find any other way. And we're really open here saying, imagine a church that looked like that. You know, imagine a church that was saying, as we're reading here in Scripture, money isn't a bad thing. We're not, we're not uh, demonizing money. We're not saying it's evil. We're not saying, you know, you're bad because you earn a lot of it. But imagine a church that said also that money isn't a path to freedom and hope and joy. That generosity is a path to freedom and hope and joy and meaning and purpose in life. Now we've talked, if you've been around here for a while, we've talked a lot about generosity in this place and we'll continue to do so because Jesus talked a lot about generosity. Because the first church was built on generosity. Was built on people who would give away everything, who would put themselves last in order to put other people first and saw God do amazing things, unbelievable things when they lived that way. Because generosity blesses others, but generosity also does something in us. It frees us from the grip of money. It frees us from, uh, from that place in life where money tends to be an idol, where it gets put in that place where it is the source of our freedom and our hope and our joy. Friends, that's the kind of life that I hope in this place we will want to live. That's the kind of people that we want to be. That's the kind of church that we want to be. And that is the good news about the idol of money. 